0: Support for this special Editors' Choice edition of the JCMS podcast is brought to you by an educational grant from ABV, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program.
1: Good day and welcome to this special Editors' Choice edition of the JCMS podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Barber. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And today we'll be talking about telehealth. Before COVID-19 hit, telehealth was breaking some ground, but it really took off with the COVID pandemic, and it's becoming increasingly important in our dermatological practices. There's no question that telehealth has gone viral. Today, I'm going to bring you interviews with three leading dermatologists and experts in the area of telehealth. Dr. Harvey Louie is a professor of dermatology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Regine Medlarski is associate professor of dermatology at the University of Calgary. And we're going to start today with my interview with Dr. Stephen Feldman. Dr. Feldman is a professor of dermatology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina and a leading expert on the importance of empathy in the successful treatment of patients. When we spoke, I asked him how a doctor's ability to project empathy was affected in telehealth calls and how we might improve our empathetic voices for these interviews. He told me that in this age of Zoom and video calls, one of the most important things is to successfully stage your office to help build patient confidence.
2: I think the telehealth visit with the stethoscope,
1: yeah,
2: a doctor's bag in the background. In the background. Also in the background, not only those diplomas, but I think having plants in the background um, softens things and, and w- creates a warmth and friendliness to the environment and maybe, you know, some awards, if you haven't gotten an award from the Canadian dermatology society, you just go to your local award <laughs> shop, buy, buy a couple of awards, put them in behind you, <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, because we're doing this to make the patient well. And so there's nothing, I, I believe that it's totally fine to mislead people if you're doing it for the right reasons and the right way. And, um, that's a whole other area of issue of ethics that could be explored. The question then is, how do
1: you appear to be empathetic virtually?
2: Yeah, and I've been working on that for years now, um, not because of telemedicine, but because I want to digitize that sense of caring as best I can, because I'm never going to convince doctors to do what I do. I need need to come up with a way of making it available digital at low cost. But here's what I do. Here's how I cure scalp psoriasis. If If you can fix scalp psoriasis, you've earned a black belt in adherence because scalp psoriasis is the mother of all adherence problems. I'm going to tell you the trick to get scalp psoriasis patients better in just three days. Clear the scalp in three days, reliably. You tell the patient, uh, Gosh, scalps rise, so frustrating, so hard to treat. Uh, we're going to use um, clobetazole, this all-natural organic anti-inflammatory. And the, the, the patient will probably say, but but I've seen Dr. Barber already. I, I tried that. He, I've seen six dermatologists. Th- seven, three of them wanted me to use that. It doesn't work. I say, trust me. It's just for three days. You have so much hair that when you tried putting it in before, it probably all ended up on your hair not on the scalp. It's a two person job. It's like getting your hair colored. You got to separate the hair down to the roots and do one line and then some move some over and do another line. So your your either your mother or your spouse or your sister or your daughter is going to need to help you put this stuff in. Now it may sting. The stinging is a sign that it's working. I know it's not going to be easy, but you only have to do it for three days. I'm going to see you back here in the office in three. No, wait, then you're going to have another copay. I tell you what, let me write down my cell phone number for you. Here is my cell phone number. You call me in three days because I want to know how this is doing. Okay. Now let's unpack what we just did. First, we told them they had a lot of hair. People love being told they have a lot of hair. When you tell them they have a lot of hair, they think, oh, I like this doctor. I'm going to, I trust this doctor. I'm going to do what they say. So, so women, especially, I don't care how much hair they have. You tell them you have a lot of hair. And, and it's true. People have a lot of hair. There's like 60 times, a woman has 60 times as much surface area of hair as she does of scalp. And so it and it is a two person job. If you do it yourself, it all ends up on the hair. And by having two people, you more than double the likelihood that one of them is an anal retentive person who actually does what you say. There are a few of them. Mm -hmm. You'll recognize them. They bring to you multicolored Excel spreadsheets showing you all the medicines that are taking. You tell them the stinging is a sign that it's working. Because when people feel stinging, normally they're like, I can't use this, it stings. But if you tell them the stinging is a sign that it's working, when they feel the stinging... They're like, oh, it stings. That's good. It's working. Um, it's like those TV commercials for that shampoo. Feel the tingle. You know, it's when 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 you tell them this, it take it turns that hurdle actually into an opportunity, and it's actually a true statement because if they just get it on their hair, it won't sting. The stinging is a sign they got it down on the scalp, which means it's a sign that it's working. So it is a sign that's where I never lie. I mislead as much as I need to to help people and no more. I would I would not mislead people to make more money. I would only mislead people to help get their psoriasis. And then I've told them it's just three days. If you ask an alcoholic to give up alcohol forever, they go, I can't do that. I need a drink. But if you tell them you just have to quit for today, they can do it. It's easy to do it for today. So I'm telling people it's just three days. And then I tell them, here's the cell phone number. Now, they think I care about them because I care that they don't have this copay. I care enough about them to give them my cell phone number. When they call me three days later, if I see them on Thursday and they call me on Sunday, they're like, you want me to call you on Sunday? I'm like, yes. You call me Sunday night, I I don't answer the phone. Why? I don't need to answer the phone because answering the phone doesn't change what they did the previous three days. And the message they leave is invariably, oh, Dr. Feldman, I am so relieved that you didn't answer the phone because I really didn't want to bother you on a Sunday, but you said I had to call. You are right, it worked like a miracle. I'm like 95% better already. Another couple days and it'll be gone.
1: That was Dr. Stephen Feldman of Wake Forest University. And now I'm going to put the question of expressing sympathy with telehealth to University of British Columbia professor, Dr. Harvey Louis.
0: It's tough, especially, you know, with telephone, you don't get as many of those um, body language cues. You know, when when you're looking at a patient, um, you know, there are a zillion transactions that are happening over and above whatever the spoken word is. You know, the tra- if you took a transcript yeah. of an office encounter, you wouldn't even begin to understand the quality or the nature of that encounter. It's all those little, you know, subtle, you know, eye movements or the positioning of the body and all these things. And, and the thing yes. I remind my students is we often think that when the patient comes to see us that uh, we're there to examine them and to, you know, make a diagnosis and then render treatment the patients are there to judge us and the whole time they're in the office they're watching us and they're making a decision about whether you're credible whether you are competent whether you're empathetic and based on that judgment by them of us they will then decide whether they're going to adhere Um, and I think a lot of physicians don't realize how much we are actually being judged um, it's a two-way street. And uh, and I call it, you know, the theater of medicine. You know, we've got to play our role. We've got to act the part, uh, you know, act it sincerely and honestly. Yes. Uh, but we're on show,
1: actually, each time
0: a patient comes to see us.
1: Well, that lesson I've learned in this past couple of months on the telephone, to try and do a, a respectful sort of interview, particularly a new patient. Because on the telephone, you can't make... Sense you you always seem to be talking over the person because you and I have questions we need to answer and the folks at the other end don't know you they 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 want to tell you and help you and give you as much information as they possibly can and to try and and get a, a say an appointment done in ten minutes which in the office for many patients isn't a isn't 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 uh, an unreasonable amount of time on the telephone oh oh my dear. Yeah, I have so much trouble. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's, it, it, it,
0: it's really a challenge. You know, for example, um, you know, you'll say to the patient, "Oh, what medications are you on?" And then they go, "Oh, let me go find out." And you go, No, 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 don't go and find out. You know, That's okay. <laughs> Just stay put because otherwise they're gone for two minutes, right? And yeah. and there's yeah. your yeah. time. And, and before you had a list in front of yeah, you. Before you had a list.
1: And you could glance you could you glance at it be either before you walked in the room or as you're walking in the room. You already had that piece of information in yeah. your head, right? Oh I know. It's it has changed the interview technique. It's
0: changed the interview technique and I think it's forcing us to realize that, you know uh, one thing that I think is really important for you know the government and for uh, healthcare providers or the system to understand is they call it telemedicine and telehealth, but the model that we've been using up to now has been that someone else will solicit the history, get the picture, and then make a decision about whether or not to send that information to me as a dermatologist, and so it's filtered, it's edited, if you will, uh, and it's mm-hmm. efficient. When I have to be the primary information gatherer and I have to rely on the patient to provide me with the photo, um, it... The system just is not efficient. It doesn't work. We've got to have new workarounds to adapt to this telemedicine if we are going to be the information gatherers, so to speak. Um, and so, the next edition of the patient charter will probably need to incorporate, you know, some aspect. Uh, I was just going to come uh, to that,
1: and 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 because because these people are thoughtful and they're they're concerned, and telehealth, whatever or whatever you want to call it, is be it's going to be part of our world oh for sure it's going to be part of the world so um so i would really prompt them to add a number nine yeah um, or or something or it's not, add a
0: num- yeah for example you know the uh another thing that I, I i heard on the radio the other day and i thought wow um you know when the times of great turmoil there's big changes but you know, people assume they're going to be temporary. And then once the, the turmoil is over, you know, they'll go back to their old normal. Well, income tax in Canada was created during World <laughs> War One, And it was supposed to be temporary to raise some money for the government to fight the war. Uh, as far as income tax is concerned, World War One is not over yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this telehealth thing has got us. It, it, people like it. Yeah. Our, our, my patients our, your patients it sounds like too really like it and for 30, 40, 50% of the practice certainly a lot of the follow-ups it's very practical and it saves people uh, from getting in their car driving halfway across town taking a half day off to, it, just in order to come and say for two minutes I'm doing great here have a look right and and be done with it yeah yeah that was Dr. Harvey Louie. And now I'm going to put the question to Dr. Regine Modlarski, a colleague of mine here at the University of Calgary and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine. I asked Regine about the impact of the pandemic-driven explosion of telehealth in an academic setting where she is often seeing more complex patients. Is it helping her to manage those patients? Or is she finding she still has to bring them in for assessments?
3: You know what? I think there was a lot of reluctance initially, especially during the COVID pandemic, as to how we were going to do it, how you do it efficiently. And, you know, I guess when you think of telehealth, you have to realize it sort of exists in this undefined regulatory space, right? There's no clear regulations with it. There have been no clear training standards with it. Funding all over the country is really quite frankly, all over the map. And so the issue is how do you implement something like that? And I think that is one of the major recommendations that came up is that in order for us to address the needs of Various populations, but especially rural populations, vulnerable populations, where it's not necessarily always easy to come in. We have to be some. Su- we have to be able to provide some other way to support them. And telehealth does come up. Um, so there's a variety of new emerging technologies and virtual health and others that will be required as we move forward. And unfortunately, COVID just catapulted us into using them. But it was, you know, it was meant to be. And so the timing is perfect that we now implement this into training. So people have more standards of training in this and we know what we have to do.
1: So Alberta Health Services really got going and in a big way and saw it like it's like they they, they threw all kinds of energy at doing this and um, in the zoom platform mm-hmm. and how has that platform worked out reasonably well I mean the critical bits are still internet speed but mm-hmm. is it has it been a decent platform because they they have a professional grade or a, a commercial they grade do. they program. have the health
3: services program it yeah. works quite well obviously it's not as efficient. Um, by any means, but I personally have a, you know, I, I see predominantly complex medical dermatology cases and it's actually worked quite well during the pandemic to see them because not all of the patients always need a complete skin assessment. I mean, if you're dealing with someone who has chronic skin disease and you're monitoring it, you can get a pretty good idea as to what's going on by talking to the patient. The problem with the virtual platforms is that the resolution and the quality of the photos still aren't good enough Mm -hmm. so it's very difficult for instance if you want to do a skin check or look at nevi um, you know that those are hard to assess in that format but for more chronic concerns trying to get an idea for instance of someone with psoriasis how extensive it is or how active their pemphigus is it's it's suitable
1: yeah, I, I mean, I, I've done a fair bit of it now, and you're quite right. The, the, the I I believe that the only reason for the virtual face-to-face is so that you can be sure in this theater of the consultation, if you will, that the individual is understanding you. You can get some body language from them. They can see you, and I think there's a certain amount of trust that goes through eye contact and uh, but you're right store and forward where you get pictures sent in is really the only way to assess anything really other than general extent of disease and um and, but monitoring drug therapy seems to have worked quite well um, um so you know it's going to be hard to wean people off telehealth or, um if uh, if we don't we end up not being paid for it
3: yeah so i think that is one of the major issues and certainly um at the royal college they can work with other um, with the government and we can lobby as the specialty committee in dermatology the government to find better formats but funding at the present time is a major issue with telehealth
1: That was Dr. Regine Medlarski at the University of Calgary, along with Dr. Harvey Louis of University of British Columbia and Dr. Stephen Feldman of Wake Forest University. I hope you enjoyed this special Editor's Choice edition of JCMS Author Interviews. If you liked it, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Tell your friends about us on social media and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. So until next time, I'm Kirk Barber. Be good to each other.